podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Face Off. I'm your host, Kyle Wilkinson. Obviously, it's an international break at the moment, so we're not here to discuss a, a recent result, but we do nonetheless have an interesting topic to tackle. Today, we're going to be talking about a, a topic that's become quite divisive this season, more, more so than in, in recent years, which is the, the topic of Liverpool Football Club's owners, Fenway Sports Group. And to tackle this subject, I have two great guests with me, the first of which was the man who suggested the topic, host of AI's US pod, Justin Wells. How are you doing, Justin? Uh, I'm doing all right. Um, you know, international breaks are boring, but given the nature of this season, having a few weeks of not having to watch football, is uh, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of appreciated. Um, the quality of it hasn't been great, so it uh, often leads, to, leads the mind to wander onto different topics such as this. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly something that that's worth tackling, and and it's a good good chance to do that. And my second guest is a man who those on the AI Discord might be quite familiar with. It's Lubo Murkov. How are you doing, Lubo? I'm good, Carl. Hello, uh, hello, Justin. It's uh, it's going to be my second second podcast after the one that we did impromptu. A couple of years ago when uh, Gaz and Mando and Justin were in New York and Steve Pizza. So I'm, I'm glad. I agree with uh, Justin. It's not much to think about football-wise, even though I have been looking at the uh, AFCON results and um, just see how Navicata is doing today, hoping that there's no injury, which is probably 99% of Liverpool fans today. Otherwise, I'm good. Yeah, I don't think uh, international breaks tend to be nappies. Friend, but hopefully, hopefully this is the exception to the rule, and he he comes back. I think he, he's only playing in the one game, I think, because the club wouldn't release him for the second game. Isn't that the case? Yeah, just today, because uh, the, the the next game is at Namibia, which must be on a UK uh, banned list or restricted travel list. So hopefully, after today's game, he should be on a plane back to back to Liverpool and uh, just get ready for the game against Arsenal. Hopefully, I'd, I'd like to. I think think a lot of us would like to see him kind of play a bit more in the the latter half of the season. But of course, that's not the the topic we're here to discuss. We're we're here to discuss FSG. But I think before we get into FSG, I think it's it's important for for context to look at life before FSG and of course their their initial takeover. So I have a bit of a, a timeline to lead us in here with the the key events. So on June 22, 2009, Christian Perslow was appointed the managing director of the club. He was tasked with renegotiating the financing deal and seeking new investment in the club. April 16, 2010, the club's owners Hicks and Gillette agree a six-month financing extension and appoint Martin Broughton as chairman as they look to sell the club. May 7th. 2010, auditors reveal accounts which show the club is £350 million in debt with losses of £55 million in the previous year. June 3rd, 2010, Rafa Benitez leaves the club by mutual consent. And what a sad day that was. July 1st, 
2010, Roy Hodgson is appointed manager. Another sad day. And October 6, 2010, board approved sale of the club to NESG, now known as FSG, for £300 million. Hicks and Gillette attempt to block the sale, including by attempting to oust board members. October 13th, a high court injunction in favour of creditors Royal Bank of Scotland paves the way for the sale of the club. October 15th, the sale of the club is completed. December 1st, Tom Werner is appointed chairman. November 3rd, Damien Kamali is appointed director of football strategy. January 8th, 2011, Roy Hodgson leaves the club by mutual consent. Kenny Daglish appointed interim replacement. On March 22nd, Ian Eyre is appointed managing director. And on the same day, NESV becomes Fenway Sports Group. So, Justin, can you recall kind of how you felt at the time under Hicks and Gillette, kind of in the direction the, the, the club was going? I, I know it was 10 years ago. But I think, in, at least in my mind, it's probably one of the, the most dire situations the club has been in. Oh, no. It, it was it was ugly. It was bad. We couldn't afford anything. And forget the concept of sell to buy, which, we're, which is where we find ourselves now. This was sell to service debt, right? The club's, the club's economics were, were poorly poorly run. And uh, at that point, you know, I think one of the things that you, uh, you know, you didn't necessarily state because it doesn't necessarily transpire in how Hicks and Gillette transfer ownership of the club to uh, New England Sports Ventures, now FSG, but it's just, you know, it, it's a critical aspect of it was um, the inability to build a new stadium, the inability to find financing for the promised large Stanley Park Stadium that never occurred. And that was effectively the uh, the death knell for Hicks and Gillette because they couldn't find other ways to monetize and they didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, what you probably call um, the reach of the connections to find the liquidity necessary to even you know, continually service their debt. So the situation under them was dire. And I think that the thing they were trying to do towards the end was find a sale that would work for them, which was selling the club as a brand as a, at, at a profit rather than, uh, you know, settling for getting out of uh, a bunch of uh, debt that they had incurred, which is effectively what did happen. They walked away from it penniless. So now I say penniless. Hicks, uh, Tom Hicks and George Gillette are still very wealthy men. I mean penniless from the perspective of what they could extract as owners of Liverpool. Uh, so that ultimately is the uh, you know the situation, and it, it was dire. There's nothing. There's nothing good that could be said of the prior regime. No, I mean certainly we we didn't even win anything in in their their short stint with the club. So there, there's nothing really to take from it. Um, Lubo. As as Justin touched on it, it was a dire situation, but there, there seems to be kind of some split on, on how dire it was among our fans. I mean, if you speak to some fans, they thought they were, were days away from having to find a new football club to follow. Others seem to think that it would have resolved itself somehow, some way, given given the stature of the club. I mean, what side of the fence did, did you sit on at the time? So it, it is a bit interesting because uh, though that period between around 2006 to about 2010 was just super busy for me personally with my personal life and, and work and everything else. So I was mostly just keeping track of just the results and especially in the Champions League because it was just easier to follow here than the Premier League, at least for me. So I, I didn't honestly become as involved or as interested to understand the, the details. 
until basically right around the time when um, uh, FSG, or as they know now, FSG emerged as, as potential buyers just because he got a lot of um, a lot of news here in, in the U.S., a lot of coverage. And so uh, then I, I dug in and, and tried to understand. So in many ways, I would say I was a little bit fortunate, if you will, because I missed a lot of the debate, the pro and, and con, and a lot of the, 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 the split in the fan base. But now reading back and, and even just uh, getting perspectives from people who, who were at that, definitely was dire. I, I, do, I do believe, I would say, it's probably more likely than not that if the sale had not uh, happened, uh, that the, the the club could have gone into some sort of insolvency and everything that that uh, would follow from that. So I do definitely think that the club is in, in a really really dire situation now. Whether you look at John Henry as the knight in you know in in, in uh, on a white horse in armor coming to rescue the club or not, I think it's up to debate. But I do think that that the club was in a in a very very precarious situation at the time. Yeah, I, I think certainly as as you said, there's you know, some people might look at FSG as, as almost as, as saviors. Others might see them as opportunists who, who took advantage of a, of a club in a, a poor financial state to get a good deal. Um, one that certainly paid off for them. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you, you just have to feel relief at the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as, as I said, by that time, I, I've actually gone back to reading a lot more about the club and following a lot of the ins and outs and, and, and just the financial and the political situation. And at least for me, just, just knowing that there would be an owner and at least that there would be, uh, the club wouldn't be threatened by, uh, what happened to the Rangers, right? That, that was one of the fears that I had. And I, I imagine a lot of people had what, what happened in Scotland. Uh, uh, it, 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 no, no one wants to, 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 to go through that as, as a fan. Uh, so, for me, knowing that at least the ownership issue had been sorted out and that there was a plan to at least address the debt that you mentioned, there was over $300 million, uh, at least that was a relief for me. I was as curious as anyone to see what would happen uh, and some of the some of the developments that followed, especially uh, um, letting go of Hodgson and, and bringing um, Sir Kenny back. I think that definitely did was a really good first step to try to unite uh, the fans behind the club. Yeah, certainly it was a, a, a step in the right direction, but in anything would have looked at an improvement over Hodgson at the time. Uh, just I just want to inject you... one shameless plug here quickly as well. On the topic of Hicks and Gillette, there is a companion podcast to this done by myself and Kevin Hegarty covering the entirety of the history of Hicks and Gillette as owners of Liverpool that can be found on the Enfield Index, Enfield Index backlog. Just a... Uh, just a, just a point if anybody wants to go open. further. Yeah, and certainly if anybody wants to go further into the history there. But sorry, Carl, to, to come back to you now. No problem. So I'll certainly be giving that a, a listen myself. I, I wasn't aware of that one. Um, Justin, obviously you have a, a, a background in, in baseball. Obviously you used to, to host the, the podcast on Anfield Index. You would have been a lot more familiar with FSG than the likes of myself, who obviously I think like a lot of European fans, I would have been quickly jumping on Google to, to Google NESB and see what they were about. I mean, so I think you're in a unique position, which is why I'm happy to, to have you as the guest for this topic, to kind of discuss how you felt at the time with, with FSG as prospective owners of the club and, and how you maybe seen them in, in comparison to the other um, potential 
takeovers that were being mooted in the press. So my opinion on them is kind of mixed, and it has evolved a little bit over a point in time. Um, something that, something to point out and know about John Henry is his uh, his main interest is, and it's, this is not something he hides. His main interest is baseball. Um, he grew up a diehard baseball fan. He has purchased he long before he owned the Red Sox. He was involved in negotiating sports ownership uh, deals. He, in fact, himself had a small interest in both the uh, New York Yankees and the uh, Miami Marlins. Now, the Yankees, he had no sort of managing control or interest in. But the Marlins, he was the sole owner of before he bought the Red Sox. He sold the Marlins, um, ra- you know, for a, a rather hefty profit. But the 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 you know, he did not win a World Series with the Marlins. He took some of the examples he knew and he went to the Red Sox, where um, he did put into place a uh, a better infrastructure. He, uh, he they, the Red Sox are one of the best monetized clubs in baseball now. Similar to Anfield, they have Fenway Park, which is an iconic old park that uh they've you no know, they've taken advantage of and instead of trying to build new they they retrofit a lot of things into it modernized some of the amenities and and have made it a a good place to see a baseball game the results on the field speak for themselves the red sox are the most successful team of the 21st century um at the same time they uh their cycle is not uh it's dissimilar to their their main rival the new york yankees and at this point also now uh some of the other teams in Major League Baseball who are trying to threaten to become long-serving dynasties, such as the Los Angeles Dodgers and hopefully my New York Mets. But uh, their model is effectively to use um, the and they come and they to be clear they come from this from a baseball perspective from a significantly stronger financial position than they do in the in the world of football because the only teams that can really outspend them are the Yankees and the, and the Dodgers. But there is a spending constraint that exists called the collect the um, collective ba- the competitive balance tax. Which effectively acts as a de facto salary cap, which does not exist and does not, which does not exist in football. And as we, and it, I don't know if anybody's seen today, but FFP has been further defanged. So the playing field that FSG is playing on is more even in baseball. And even then, their method of uh, their method of trying to win is to build in cycles. It's very boom and bust, and it is very oriented around extracting the most possible out of prospects and young players. Now, I think that. Scouting in baseball is significantly more um, it, it's significantly more concentrated, and there's less competition than there is in football. Um, the methods by which you can acquire young talent are more limited by the by the by the concept of both the draft system for American talent, and then the international draft, the international system like for for talents that are typically going to be coming from the Caribbean or South America, but FSG as baseball owners have been generally good. I think that they are coming under some questions in Boston over their handling of certain things that I do think also give me some pause as far as their philosophy for, for Liverpool, and we'll get to that later. But amongst those things, and something that is a headline that is kind of coloring how they're seen in Major League Baseball is the trade of Mookie Betts. For anybody who doesn't know, Mookie Betts is um, he's an outfielder who now currently plays for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He won a World Series last year with the Dodgers after having won with the Red Sox in 2018. I don't remember if he was a part of the 2013 team that won. I don't think he was. But um, Betts is the second best player in baseball. The only thing keeping him from being the best player in baseball is uh, the existence of Mike Trout, who might be one of the best five players of all time. That said, Mookie Betts is a Hall of Famer in the middle of his career, and the Red Sox did not want to keep him because they did not want to pay 
the amount of money necessary that it would that would entail to employ him for the amount of time that he would need in his uh, in his in uh, his contract, which I believe is a 13-year deal with the Reds with the Dodgers. One last important note before we go there is also the economics of Major League Baseball are very fundamentally broken, and the actual ownership groups in Major League Baseball do act more as a cartel as far as um, how they control talent than uh, European football does. And if I could just jump in very quickly, I think uh, um, one analogy for, for, the, for the Liverpool fans, uh, for the Mookie Betts, and I'm not a Red Sox fan, I'm more of a fan of baseball, but it would be the equivalent of uh, uh, basically Liverpool selling, let's say, Trent Alexander-Arnold in a couple of years to a team like, I don't know, Spurs or probably more like Chelsea, uh, just because uh, uh, Liverpool did not want to commit to a long-term contract. And that that would be the type of a, of a move that the Red Sox made with Mookie Betts, and you can understand why Red Sox fans are really upset. So one, one last point that I want to make on, on, on the Red Sox, especially uh, two points. One is they were among the very early adopters of analytics. So anyone who see, uh, read the book, uh, the book Moneyball or seen the movie, and a lot of the sort of the, the insights that came from the Oakland Athletics Organization, the Red Sox adopted those very early on, but they were able to throw financial, strong financial muscle behind it. And the first general, the general manager they had, which would be, his name was Theo Epstein, and think of him almost as the Michael Edwards equivalent for the Red Sox. They were really able to marry uh, analytics with uh, a really good, uh, really high payroll, and that's what allowed them to win in 2004. That's what allowed them to win in 2007. That first cycle, uh, young, hotshot general manager, uh, strong embrace of analytics, really uh, made them, I would say, probably the most successful franchise of that first uh, first decade ownership. I think the challenge that they've had, the Red Sox have had, is they've also cycled through different general managers after Theo Epstein left, and they would bring in different managers, and every manager would have a slightly different uh, uh, general manager, slightly different philosophy on how to run the club, and that way you saw potentially cycles of, of, of success and, and cycles of poor form, and maybe that's one of the, really the criticism that I would um, give for FSG uh, the last few years is it, a, a bit philosophically as an organization, they seem a bit lost, and they've just gone from one general manager to another, one philosophy to another, and I don't, I don't think that that's been uh, great for them, even though they've been able to win a couple of more World Series. I think it's it's really interesting that the point you've made there in relation to the Red Sox because I, I've been able to draw a lot of parallels um, between their, their time in Liverpool. Obviously, Justin talked about how um, John Henry kind of learned from his time involved with other baseball teams and applied that to, to the Red Sox. Um, you talked about how there's financial checks on teams and how FSG have taken advantage of that in, in being able to compete with maybe a couple of teams that have more financial power behind them uh, to, to compete on, a, on an even footing. And, and we can see why they've, in the way they've sort of been one of the owners that have championed financial fair play in their time at Liverpool because they, they want to be able to use that, of course, to compete with the Manchester clubs and Chelsea and the like. Um, and lastly, then, obviously, you, you talked about the um, the unwillingness maybe to pay the, the top end wages and, and we've seen that at Liverpool as well so 
there's a lot of parallels there, and I'm, I'm sure, obviously, you, you know, as I would have suspected, you were really in that unique position to kind of maybe speculate on how things were going to go at Liverpool, knowing on how things had gone at, at the Red Sox before. So I actually, if I could just follow up on sort of the, uh, the analogy that, or the example that I gave of the Red Sox sort of moving uh, from one general manager to another, uh, especially last years, I almost feel at Liverpool it was the other way around. They started at the beginning after they bought the club, uh, possibly without having as much knowledge of, of the Premier League and football and as much experience running the club. And I, I feel the first five years, almost if you were to split their 10-year tenure uh, at Liverpool, the first five years, I, I look at it as just trying to figure out what they do. So they brought in Kamali, and Kamali's strategy didn't really, realistically didn't work. They had they brought uh, Brendan Rodgers. They, they brought in, uh, obviously, Michael Edwards and tried to build out the team. But I, I just feel that for the first few years, despite that... Uh, the League Cup that they had under Sir Kenny and even that run to almost to the very end, very last day of the season in 13-14, they didn't necessarily have a defined philosophy and a, a well thought out strategy and they didn't have all the, all the parts, all the people in place to be able to execute. So that, that first few years to me was very much just them figuring out, you know, what they wanted to do, who they wanted to bring in, how they wanted to build the, the organization. And then the second part, which is the last five years, once they already had uh, Michael Edwards and his team in place, bringing Jurgen Klopp in place, you could definitely see now that that second five-year cycle uh, was more around, here's our strategy with, with Jurgen Klopp. This is what we want to build towards. We want to get into top four. We want to challenge for trophies. And they've been able to do that the last couple of years. I think the question is going to be now, as they enter into, if you will, the next five-year cycle, and I know this sounds very socialist with my five-year cycles, but I think it's, it's a very good question to ask. What are the next five years going to look like for Liverpool? One is, you can imagine that potentially in the next, around that time, within the next five years, they'll have to make a, a decision on, on a new manager, but also what is what are these new FFP rules going to look like? What is that going to mean? For, for their way of, of managing the club uh, and investing or not investing, depending on how you view it, in, in the club. So to me, the next five years are going to be very, very interesting. Yes, yeah, sir, certainly, and uh, we will we will be speculating on that later later in the podcast. But you know, it'll be interesting to see if if it continues to kind of parallel how how things have gone uh, with with the Red Sox. Um, but you talked about kind of those initial appointments when FSG came in. And of course, we're going to talk about kind of the, the footballing appointment in, in more detail later in the party. But let's, let's focus on those initial appointments at the moment. Obviously, from the previous regime, they weren't, when Rafa Benitez left, they weren't too interested in the footballing side of things at the time. And Roy Hodgson was almost put in place as a, he, he seemed like a stopgap manager and, that, and that's what he, he ended up being. There wasn't really a footballing person above Roy Hodgson. There hadn't been at the club for, for a long time. Um, but then they come in and within the first few months, they replace Roy Hodgson with Kenny Daglish and they appoint Damien Kamali as director of football strategy. How, how do you feel those initial appointments went? Obviously, we know how they, they played out, but kind of at the time, 
did you at least think that maybe you know we we were finally getting some footballing people in in place, Justin? I mean, I would say that it was kind of a yes and no. Uh, I, I did feel confident when I saw you know that they were trying to bring in a director of football. I know that they had spoken to David Dean. Uh, the former Arsenal, former Arsenal executive who was heavily influential towards helping Wenger, um, you know, build some of those, you know, critical and critically good Arsenal sides of the, the late 90s and early 2000s. But it also seems as if, um, once you saw what some of those appointments were doing, you weren't necessarily assured because Camoli came in with a reputation as finding some good young talent at Spurs. But then you look at what Spurs had accomplished, what those players had accomplished, uh, while there, and Spurs really hadn't put much together. Um, he found himself back at, at Anfield, and um, now, granted, I think that I think there needs to be, uh, in, but I don't think we're ever going to get this inquest. But as far as, um, and I'm using the word inquest very loosely, uh, when you when we appointed Kenny, the talent that we brought in was mostly very, very, very British. And I think I think you know if if you're bringing in someone like a Camoli who's got such a, a you know a strong scouting background to him. You want to see them unearthing uh, talents at a, at a that are that are going to be cheaper and um, better um, over the long term because the players that we brought in in that first window under Kenny, um, for the most part, were, were were not good. They weren't successful. Stuart Downing was a massive flop. Uh, Andy Carroll is still to this day uh, a ridic- you know like that, that obviously that was days into Kenny's appointment and we didn't expect to have to make that move because we thought that Torres would stay, but. Uh, Andy Carroll for 35 million looked ridiculously bad at the time. It has only looked worse as time has gone on. Um, that first window that when you're bringing in what Stuart Downing, you're bringing in Jordan Henderson. Now Henderson um, is a player who I actually think he, you know, th- that transfer I think was wildly successful. Um, the player has been very good, but Charlie Adams, a huge miss. Um, you know, his ball, his ball in the uh, EFL Cup uh, final has still not landed. Um, from the from the penalty he took, uh, and uh, it, and Jose Enrique, another player who uh, you know, although not English, uh, you know, didn't particularly do very much for the club, and uh, you know, we we could have done better with more imagination. And then even some of the players that we lost out on that we were rumored to be very deeply interested in during those windows. Um, the, the, some names that come to mind: Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, a player that is very good, a player that I think we probably could have developed well if we had prioritize getting him, but I can understand why he went to Arsenal because they had top four and we didn't. Um, but someone also like another one like uh, I, can't, I can't remember his name, but Con- oh, Connor Wickham was another player that we were heavily linked with. We were heavily linked with Phil Jones. We, you know, we we saw like the the caliber of player that we seemed to be recruiting at that point in time. And look, some of it might have been where we were in the league, but those weren't good players, and they and that did set back some trust that I had with uh, the model and, and bringing players in. Um, obviously, Kenny paid for that with his job because those players weren't capable of getting into the top four. And the second half of Kenny's first full season, as, a, as, as you know, his full season as manager, his only full season this time, was, was some of the worst football I've watched in a long time. Granted, we weren't helped by, uh, by the goalposts at all because we kept hitting them, but it just was not particularly... Uh, Good and basically it was Luis Suarez and a bunch of mistakes. Luis Suarez, a young Jordan Henderson, and a bunch of mistakes seemed to be what we had accomplished on the transfer front for about the first five years that they were there. 
and Kamali actually, just to give you my thoughts on Kamali, I was intrigued, uh, partly because it was interesting to see that Liverpool are uh, looking to adopt, if you will, the, the Red Sox style of adopt of uh, bringing a younger and anal more analytically minded um, uh, person to to run transfers, to run recruiting. Uh, obviously, at least that's how uh, I perceived it at the time. He uh, Kamali, I believe, was recommended by Billy Bean. Uh, and uh, so it, 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 it was, I was intrigued. It became very clear at the time, and, and now especially when you look back beyond just the transfers that uh, Justin outlined, but even if you look at the style of play and the type of uh, players that Kumoli tried to hire, it was very much dependent on long crosses into the box to, to have uh, be knocked down to Luis Suarez and try to score off the rebounds, which is a very inefficient strategy. And it, it just, I think that sort of the strategy of what type of player you need was wrong. And I think that's what led to a lot of these transfers of Komali engineered that actually set the club back, I would say, and, and saddled us with, with players that, that we have to, you know, take financial loss to move. Um, and so to me, the Komali reigns or the Komali time was disappointing. And then moving from, honestly, I think moving from Komali and, and Sir Kenny to to Brendan, I, I almost feel like FSG didn't quite set the rules of engagement or the model that they were going to operate in. Uh, I know they tried a little bit to bring a director of football, more experienced director of football, and Brendan to work with that person, and that never really worked, never really happened. And I think that that decision or that failure to set up a more robust structure in place when uh, Brendan Rogers came in led to a lot of the issues and a lot of the infighting over the next two to three years. Uh, and so even though we ended up seeing our almost, uh, you know, almost a win, almost a Premier League title in 13-14, once Luis Suarez left, uh, the club just ended up with a box of misfit toys that no one could really put together. And, and that really what, this is what we saw in that 14-15 season was a complete disaster. I think you've, you've touched on it a couple of times now, Lubo, in, in that there, there was a lot of toing and froing as far as the, the transfer strategy in those initial days, even even within the, the Kamoli times. I mean, it, it's interesting that I remember Kamoli came out afterwards and said that it wasn't really his strategy. It was what was being communicated to him from above was to buy British young players. I mean, even starting with Andy Carroll, I remember which was a, a bizarre strategy at the time. He, he was told to to spend a, a certain percentage of whatever fee we got on for Fernando Torres to bring in Andy Carroll. I mean, that, well, that, I don't view that though as bizarre. I view that as willfully understanding of that you know there's a bigger sell-on price attached to English players. Um, this to me is part of. This to me, I mean, this to me starts to speak to the core of some of the transfer, uh, of some of my uh, concerns with the FSG transfer policy, which is you're looking, they look too much at um, sell-on value, which is why also, in, and, and we're going to probably get to this later, which is why in recent wind, windows, we've had players like Marco Grujic and Harry Wilson hanging around for longer than they should be at the club. Not fair to the players as well, because they want their, they probably want a permanent move to know exactly what they're going to be doing, but. It's basically we're, we're bringing in players with the intent of trying to ensure that we can attach a good sell value to any player that we've seen, maybe that we've brought in, but isn't fit for purpose. 
instead of just thinking more about whether or not this player actually just fits um, what we need to do, uh, and, and you know, are, are we able to develop this player to do what we need to do? Because there is there's a definite you know understanding there, which is buy British, sell British to British clubs at a uh, at a at a higher price. But uh, it, it it's just I don't think it's a particularly good strategy. But there's a, there is a clear logic to it. And I think another example of that potentially just trying to buy opportunistically players that might be good uh, but are cheap and then hope that in a year or two you could turn around and sell them. Uh, we had Iago uh, uh, Aspas. Uh, we had Luis Alberto. I mean, we, we had, I would say, uh, uh, Lazar Markovic as another example. And, and I do think that more recently, last few years on the, on the club, I think now that club has possibly a more defined, uh, strategy, a more defined style of play and just, just maybe more defined expectations of the types of players. We've seen less of that. Uh, even though you could still say that even someone like Dom Solanke and even, uh, Rian Brewster, may still fit that profile of players that maybe were brought in, uh, going back even Jordan Ide, maybe were brought in with an eye of just developing and then reselling uh, to finance the club. And fundamentally, I don't necessarily have a problem with that as long as that does not really mess up the core of your team and as long as that keeps your team uh, very strong and competitive rather than making that your business model. And I was worried in the in the Roger sign uh, that uh, there was almost like two different business models operating at the same time. That, that's yeah. that's a that's a big. I just have one other shout though about the British players thing. There is no problem with the strategy of buying British players. The key is you have to buy them before they learn their their before they're chewed up by the British footballing pyramid and taught to play a style that is undoubtedly British and thus going to limit the technical capacity for what they can do. Basically, you have to buy the English players before they realize they're English. Uh, I mean, uh, you can't, can't argue with that when you, when you look at the, the national team at times. Um, I mean, I, I think it was interesting, Justin, when you were talking about that summer where we brought in Jordan Henderson and, and Stuart Downing, and you talked about some of the other players we, we missed out on, like uh, Connor Wickham and, and Phil Jones. Um, I think Ashley Young and um, James McCarthy were another couple that we were linked with. And I remember at the time, the message being, I, you know, I, I think it was coming from the, the likes of Ben Smith and Phil McNulty at the, the BBC, which, you know, would be kind of at the, the upper tiers of, of um, reliability at the time, was that Liverpool wanted to get as many of these British players as possible. Like, it wasn't a question of, Jordan Henderson or James McCarthy. It was if we can get both at the right place, we'll get both. It wasn't a case of Ashley Young or Stuart Downing. We wanted both, but Ashley Young, of course, went to Manchester United. It it, it did seem like it was a move to to stockpile young British talent. You know, they they, they were almost going to the taking it to the next level as far as buying these young British players that that they thought would have some sort of sell on value down the road. Um, I think maybe they've become more, as as you've as Lubo touched on, they they haven't really abandoned that that approach, but it, it's maybe become more focused as time went on. I would agree that it's become more focused. I think that the issue at this point, um, 
if you're gonna if we're gonna go into kind of what we're doing in the transfer market, uh, I think the issue at this point is less my concern with FSG about who they're buying, right? Now we've made the odd mistake here and there, but that, that we've gotten better with that. I think that that's largely due to the fact that Edwards and the scouting team know how to buy for the system that we're playing. The problem is that we don't buy enough. We we we're, we're always threadbare on depth um, once one or two things go wrong. If you look at a Liverpool squad in the past three or four years, what we've always wanted to do is project out the best case scenario. Now, in two of the last three years, projecting out the best case scenario has, has ended up extremely well, right? In this season, it has not. It has gone very, very poorly. Now, it's more likely that we're going to find luck that sits probably between what we've gone through in 18, 19, 19, 20, where we won four trophies. And then 20, and then 2021, where maybe we could still win the trophy. Possible that we could still win the Champions League. Um, I wouldn't bet on us to do so, but it's possible that we can. But it feels like what we really need to understand is that there's no real predictor of how good or bad your, your luck is going to be. And that you have to, and that you ultimately do have to prepare and have a contingency plan built out for what happens if shit hits the fan. And it seems like that's something that we haven't prepared for despite the fact that we've had ample warnings of doing so. Um, I don't know if anybody can remember back to, and everybody can, because we're clearly talking about this, the beginning of the first season under Brendan Rodgers, 2012-2013. At the beginning of the season, we had purchased Fabio Barini, the only other recognized forward we had with Luis Suarez. And because of the FSG spend policy, on the final day of the window, Clint Dempsey, a rumored target for us for the entirety of the window, goes to Spurs for a price of six million pounds. Now I owe six million pounds in the transfer window in 2012, 2013 is different than the post Neymar transfer window where obviously every single price has now been inflated by that, uh, by that particular move. But there is still, it's still six million of 2012, 2013 money, which is still not a significant sum to FSG as a whole. And the idea, though, is that they were willing to offer $4 million and Jordan Henderson as a make-weight. Um, at the time, it seemed not very good because of the fact that we really should have had Henderson because we probably also didn't have enough midfielders, as evidenced by next the next season, where we basically were going with a 13-man squad where our only change from game to game would be tactically Joe Allen or Philippe Coutinho. But we probably needed both Henderson and Dempsey. And the solution was we ended up with Jeff Henderson, who thankfully re- revived his career after the, after the, after a rough start to it at Liverpool. But at the same time, we had a thin forward line. And you could also make the argument then that FSG were right to wait it out and bringing in Daniel Sturridge and Philip Vigatino, um, at the prices that they did as distressed assets was, uh, was a strong move. But the reality is, we probably could have had Dempsey, Coutinho, and Sturridge. We could have had all three of them. And even in the next season, where we had Coutinho and Sturridge, we still had depth issues at forward. We saw the beginning of the season when Suarez was injured, uh, not injured, suspended, um, that Ayago Aspas, at that time, just didn't appear to be a Premier League player. He never was. He, he, he's, a, he's a good La Liga player. And it just felt like we took him because he was the cheapest option we could afford without having to actually spend anything. And it just feels like early on, the issue of keeping ourselves too thin at critical positions is still the problem we have today. 
and that to me is something that we haven't learned from and and it was only a matter of time before it hit us over the head again, and it did so this season. Yeah, I think you can certainly draw parallels between how we fell short in 13-14 and how we seem to be falling short this season in, in terms of personnel. Um, obviously, we, we've moved into what, what Liverpool fans might refer to as the, the dreaded transfer committee, in quotes, uh, era of recruitment at, at Liverpool. And obviously that, that initial season in which there was kind of mixed results, you know, we, we had the, the failures with Dempsey in the summer, but then of course we had Sturridge and, and Coutinho um, in the January transfer window, you know, where you can kind of go either way in your opinion on that season. But then the following summer we had the, the departure of Luis Suarez and then we had how, how that money was, was spent. And that might be one of the, the, the biggest examples of, of wastefulness um, in FSG's time at the club, I mean, how did you see uh, how how that money was spent at the time, Lubo? Uh, I mean, in many, it was a disaster, right? If you look at you look at the players that were brought in, uh, you know, Rick Lambert and and Lalana and and a few others, and and granted, Lalana had a, a couple of good seasons. I think Ricky Lambert maybe had a couple of good games. But even then, uh, I think that was around the time that same winter, uh, sorry, that same summer is when um, Mario Balotelli came in. So it, it just it just felt that there were uh, two competing strategies still uh, running running um, in parallel around who wanted uh, what player, uh, and it was it was untenable. And, and honestly, I feel that that is one one situation, uh, one area where possibly FSG I should have. Stepped in earlier, or uh, or stepped in, um, I don't know, with with uh, with a more with a clearer strategy. But in many ways, that that season that followed fourteen fifteen was was disastrous. And I think honestly, you should have just, if from my perspective, it was you should have just let uh, uh, Brendan Rodgers leave after that defeat at, at Stoke. There was no point in, in in having him for the summer. It was another wasted transfer season. It was another wasted start of the season after that. And that to me is probably the big, uh, that post 13, 14 and that season that followed in the transfer sagas. To me, the biggest, uh, problem that I had at that time with, um, with FSG is just not having honestly the balls to just let Brendan Rodgers leave after that, uh, soak, soak win. And honestly, by that time, Jurgen Klopp had already told Borussia he was leaving. If he, if they had, my, my perspective, if they had, uh, fired Brendan Rodgers in May, they would have somehow convinced, uh, Klopp to come in that summer earlier. Raheem Sterling might have still stayed. We wouldn't have been Teke. The, the, the whole, um, pivot, uh, to life under Klopp would have happened much faster. And I blame just FSG refusing to just make the right decision earlier. And let go of, of, of Brendan Rodgers after that uh, uh, defeat at Stoke, and just wasting an entire summer. Honestly, really, an entire season after that, 15-16, as as Klopp came in and was just trying to figure out, you know, what do I have on my hands with all of these like 30 odd players that that I can't even fit into a lineup. Well, I think that yeah, that's I... the thing that you're bringing up that's important to note here. Sorry, Carl. But it's about FSG, basically, and their approach to kind of intervention and activism as owners of the club, right? When I say activism, I'm broadly meaning within the scope of actually the playing staff in the club. I don't mean 
any sort of other activism outside of because I, I want to lead the conversation to their football envision, right? And the ability and, and yeah. what they can do there. I don't want to go down a path of trying to, you know, berate John Henry as an individual human being. That's just not the point of this. But yeah. um, they don't make decisions very quickly. They follow a very corporatist mindset where it's effectively we'll kind of give you two periods of review. We'll look at how things are going in the winter and we'll look at how things are going in the summer. Right. There's no, it feels like that otherwise it's hands off. Here's your budget. Um, if you need anything in between now and then, um, tough. It's just not how we work. And to me, the, the point you're ta- calling about intervention, the only time that they've acted really decisively in a period where it's not kind of the winter or the summer was in fact firing Rogers after, uh, after the, after the Derby. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and there, there are pros and cons to that. So right now, for example, if you were to ask me, given what's happening with the club, uh, there are questions. Should you just say, okay, it's a bad period. Uh, we should move in and uh, yeah. let go of Jurgen Klopp. I would say absolutely not. But but I think it's, the, the situation at the time with, with Rodgers had been going on for a long period of time. There wasn't the same just run of injuries. There weren't a lot of these circumstances that, could help explain what was happening. It was very clear why it was happening, and they just did not act fast enough, waste the whole summer, waste really another season uh, that they could have used to, to actually reverse course. And I, I agree with you. I think that maybe some, sometimes they're sort of the long-term process that they have in place could actually come to, to be a disadvantage. I think, I, think it's, I think that looking at everything that long-term is a problem. There is one other point before, because I know, Carl, you're, you're dying to take control of this back. But there is one other point that I do want to bring up about Rodgers and this whole concept of the transfer committee. Uh, this is, and this is something I'm actually going to give FSG credit for. The entire reason the world knew about this concept of a transfer committee, a thing that every other club has, where basically scouting, finance, and playing staff come together to figure out what you need, because that's how a football club is operated. The only reason that this was lambasted as ridiculous is because Brendan Rodgers was a very political actor within the club, and he spoke to any journalist possible about the setup to make it seem like it's something that's very American and foreign that was being ridiculed, when in reality it is a standard practice of any operation that's looking that's a football club because no manager has the time to manage his club, to dictate how the academy is run, and then dictate all the transfer and all the scouting, all the transfers and scouting down to the finances. Uh, no, no manager has has the ability to do that. Even Verg, even Ferguson and Fenger, Wenger, the last two of the, who were seen to be of this type, still had massive amounts of help there. I agree. Yeah, I think it's certainly um, important to highlight that 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 maybe the, the whole transfer committee thing was was blown out of proportion just because of a, a, a an interview by Brendan Rodgers. But that's how things can go at, at, at times in, when it comes to to football. Um, you know, we we talked about how there. Obviously, you mentioned how Klopp came in after Rogers, and and maybe it didn't happen as as quickly as we would have liked. But it, it was important when it did happen, and obviously, it's, it's arguably the most important uh, appointment in FSC's time. But one appointment that that you know possibly competes with it, and you know is is um, maybe doesn't get the limelight that Klopp does, but is nonetheless equally as important. Is of course Michael Edwards, and and he, you know, well, he might not have effectively replaced 
the transfer committee that that's how maybe some fans see it that, that Michael Edwards was kind of promoted up and and he he took the the authority there. Um, but obviously, what we can say is obviously he has in that time gotten more control over things. He, nowadays, he is our sporting director, and he's been in that position since November 2016. I mean, how important, Justin, is Michael Edwards, and you know, in the success that that we've had now, and and how much credit do FSG deserve for for his appointment? So I think that is, I think they deserve. A middle ground of uh, of uh, you know kudos for his appointment. The reason being, the reason we were able to get him is because of the fact that he wasn't a huge name director of football, right? Because ideally, you know, Klopp worked with Zork. You had people like Monchi around. Like there are people with huger names in the game than Michael Edwards had when we hired him. That said, it's a very good hire because his system of buying and selling players has, for the most part, worked, and his ability to scout players has, for the most part, worked. And his ability to buy players who fit Jurgen Klopp's system for the most part has worked. That said, right, I think that, and this is kind of going to go into a forward-looking posture, Edwards has been able to do well because of the fact that he has unearthed some forms of market inefficiencies using the analytics that he has. Those gaps always get narrowed. So, the, the, you know, he, he succeeded very much the first part of his career, building a champion. The second part that he has to do is continue is find a way to continue that level of success and i don't necessarily think that that's something that might be fully within his control because teams will copycat his approach and figure out how to and figure out how to work the market in the same way he does what's important is going to be how we react to that and either a can we unlock another inefficiency which i don't think we can or b do we have to change the approach to how he's allowed to operate and give him more more freedom slash less restriction to go out and actually spend more on already established players, which I think we might need to do. Uh, I think that is a great point. And you saw that, going back to the analogy with the Red Sox, you definitely saw in the first few years with uh, Theo Epstein, they were able to to use the, sort of the, the, the fledging field of analytics, throw financial muscle behind it, and were able to win two World Series and really became the dominant team. And then you saw that other teams caught up. And in fact, there are teams in baseball that are, you know, I would say analytically are smarter than the Red Sox right now. Uh, so, uh, and then that's partly where uh, the Red Sox trying to reinvent so the model as other teams caught up, not just uh, analytically, but also financially, like the Yankees, like the Dodgers. Um, you could even say the Astros, but there's a big asterisk of, of the cheating. And they, they've gone back, they've, they've, they've had highs and lows as they're trying to respond to that change. And I completely agree, uh, here with Justin. When you look at what the Man City, the, 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 the uh, and the whole group, they're hiring tons of really smart people. Um, I think even Man United is supposedly hiring eight people, but that's probably more just to sort through their 30,000 scouting reports and just file them in cabinet. But there are teams, and, and Chelsea are very smart, there are teams that are catching up analytically, and then you're going to either have to uh, continue to unearth uh, those gems or change the way you operate uh, to, to be able to, to, to keep up, especially given how competitive the, the, the Premier League has happened has, has come now. No, it's not just the top six. You even have West Ham, you have Leicester, you have some of these smaller teams 
that every year are coming up and they're threatening for the top four pots. So I, I think I think that definitely uh, I agree with Justin. They will have to be hopefully uh, Michael Edwards and his team can continue to evolve and stay at the, at the cutting edge analytically. But from an investment model, I do agree uh, it, it will require a revisit of some of the early parameters and specifically, you know, live within your means and just you know spend 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 what you have and it either mean that we have to very rapidly ramp up our commercial uh, revenue engine and and ex get to you know 700 800 million some ridiculous amounts of money uh to coming uh, from commercial revenue tv revenue uh anfield or uh you have to then uh consider maybe something more around what uh even Leicester are doing uh I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a model where what uh Roman Abramovich is doing because he's just laundering money out of Russia but I think that there would need to be a review of what is the best uh, best model to to continue to um, support the team financially. Well, look, that's a good segue into to speaking about budgets. I mean, we have figures there, you know, from from transfermarket.com that, according to that, over the ten and a bit seasons that FSG have been in charge, they've we've have a net spend of a total of just over three hundred and seven million. In the initial five first seasons, they've spent roughly an average of, of £30 million pound net um, a season, which, of course, would match up with, obviously, their strategy of initially, you know, you need to, to purchase those sellable assets so that you can sell them down on the line at a profit. And in the subsequent five seasons, we've, we've seen three seasons see a net profit and transfers. And there, of course, was the outlier of the season of 2018-19 where we, we spent over £126 million. Um, but there is the argument now that, that the, the sell-to-buy model, as you've suggested, isn't working for us and, and we do need more. But some people, that the argument seems to come down to some whether FSG can afford that or not. So some people say they're, they can't. You know, they're, the money that's going in is the money the club has. And others would suggest there's a lot more money there that that could be spent. I mean, what, what's your position on that, Justin? My position is that there's more money that can be spent. Um, I, I have asked about this. There, there are ways within which the, you know, the parent company, FSG, can loan money to Liverpool as a capital, you know, as a, as kind of a capital expense or a capital payout. That's not a thing we do, right? Now, that is what Abramovich does. He effectively you, you know, loans his own cash to Chelsea. Um, the, the risk of own, owing and own, you know, owning the owner owing himself, the, the owner, the entity owing the owner cash is a significantly less awful kind of debt to incur. Often because you can control also the fact that you might not even have to pay financing charges on it than going out to a, then going out to say like an RBS and that such as Hicks and Gillette did to go out and borrow cash. Because you don't have to actively service the debt at, at, at like really high interest rates, depending upon what you borrowed against. You also don't put it, you also don't pile up necessarily debt against the asset because the owner can simply withdraw money from the asset when needed to, to cover the debt, which you'd assume you'd be able to do if you're able to buy the right players, win trophies, and make you know and make a lot of money. Because there's one thing that's true about this sport: winning basically allows you to make a lot of money. Now, 
I think that we probably are at a point right now with the squad where unless you want to sell Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane, two players that I do not think we should actually consider selling unless there is no other way to finance, um, you know, a way to get younger, because we do also need to have this side get younger. Um, we have some holes that we need to fill, and I don't necessarily know what we can sell to go out and find the players that we need to fill the three major holes that we're going to have, which are going to be a center back, assuming Jenny Wijnaldum leaves, a starting caliber central midfielder who is always available, and we probably need another center, we probably need a new forward. Regardless of what you think about Salah, Mane, or, or Firmino, or Jota's ability, we are light on the forward line, and if you look at a team like City, right, who, regardless of what they can spend, that's who we're competing with, or Chelsea, they can consistently bring in starting caliber, high-end Premier League talent at all times yeah. off the bench. I, I we cannot. So two, 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 two points. I think two, two, two observations. Fundamentally, and you, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or if you've been in Discord, I fundamentally don't have a problem with living within your means uh, and, and sort of having a, a fairly small net spend as long as one is you can consistently grow your revenue, your commercial revenue, especially your TV revenue year over year, whereas you, uh, as that increases and you spend, let's say, 58% or 60% of your revenue on wages and you have enough money to be able to, uh, to pay for, for transfers, maybe you sell uh, some players in the periphery, as long as you consistently can grow your revenue, uh, I think it's fine to live within your means as an organization. I think the challenge is going to be is the, I don't know how much more the, the club can grow. And that's actually one of the criticism I feel, at least on the commercial side, uh, Liverpool should have grown much quicker, much more aggressively than they are. And especially now with the pandemic, if you're in a situation where maybe 500 million a year is more or less all you can count on as a revenue, that basically limits you in terms of uh, keeping the squad that you have, the players that you you have, as well as being able to invest in transfers. So, from from that perspective, if 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 FSG after the pandemic are able to increase the overall revenue, annual revenue to 600, 700 million, I can I can say yeah, they can probably still have small net or live within their means, if you will, without an injection of, of capital from FSG to be able to compete consistently. I just don't know if they'll be able to grow their revenue that that much that quickly. And then around the, the so I do think there will need to be some consideration around owner injection of capital. And I, I actually looked into this. They did, I think it was back in 2011, 12, uh, FSG did buy uh, something like 47 million uh, outside uh, loan loans and, and convert it into owner's loan. And then I think it's 2016, uh, they converted about 69 million worth of owner's loan in, into equity. That's basically what Abramovich uh, is is doing. That's what they did, and I think part part of the reason they did is because they wanted to meet FSP obligations to compete in, in in Europe. But that is one avenue that they could take, which is basically look at all the outstanding loan that that is uh, out there for the Cur for the Kirby Center. Look at the outstanding loans uh, for the main stand. If you wanted to, you could convert that 
debt into equity, uh, and that is a very quick and um, and um, efficient way of basically investing, uh, indirectly investing more money into the club because now the club doesn't have to worry about debt, doesn't have to pay interest on that, that some of that could be spent uh, on transfers or on wages. And I do hope that is one thing that they will consider, especially now that um, it looks like the pandemic may be coming to an end. Uh, that may be something that they could consider to just quickly convert uh, some of those outstanding debts into 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 equity and help the team. See, that's where that's where I think though that it has to go beyond consideration. I, I think if they're actually serious about winning, I just think that they have to do that they have to go beyond considering it. They just have to do it, right? If you think about the squad right now, if you're trying to convince potential transfer targets that um, this season is an aberration rather than the uh, the downturn of a cycle, you have to go out and show the remainder of the squad. You know, you have to go out and keep the players that you have that you know can help you win, and you have to go out and get players who are ready right now to help you win, not in three years. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think I, I think I don't think there's really much of a choice there. I think if, if you want to continue to spin that cycle upwards, you have to just act aggressively and. That to me, with it with FSG, um, there's two different forms of FSG acting aggressively in the market. One of them is identifying a need and immediately executing the deal. They're decent at that. Look at the Fabinho deal, right? We hadn't had a defensive midfielder for God knows how long. It's one of the most important positions in the modern game. We went out and signed the best one we could find, who has become arguably the best one in the world, right? When we know we need something and we have a target ready and ready to go, we go for it. But there's the other kind of aggression, which is our ability to go out and execute, uh, you know, a high a high price transfer. We don't really, we haven't done one of those in a while. We kind of need to, because we really need a starting caliber forward very badly. Yeah, certainly. I think not. Not no fans would would argue that we we need to be doing more in, in terms of, of transfers because we, we kind of have allowed things, particularly in the past couple of seasons, to, to slack off and as, as a lot of teams are, are breathing down our necks, some have even possibly surpassed us, but you know, maybe they, this season we, we have been somewhat unlucky. Um, but I mean, Luba, you, you mentioned that the commercial performance under FSG and, and maybe we could be doing even even more, which which is, is interesting because I, I think that's one area where People tend to champion FSG is in how they have expanded the club's commercial performance. I mean, in the 90s, obviously, Manchester United surpassed us on the pitch. But, you know, more impressively for me, they, they surpassed us commercially 10 times over. And we've kind of been pe- playing catch up ever since. And, but we have made a lot of ground in FSG's time. I mean, some, some uh, highlights would be obviously the expansion of the, the main stand, bringing capacity to, to 54,000. Uh, the renewed sponsorship deal with Standard Chartered, of course, the shirt deal with Nike, and uh, the naming rights for the the new training center with with AXA. I mean, the, these things are all bringing a lot more money. But you know, as you suggested, they could possibly be doing more on that front. I do think I do think they could be doing more, and I I feel that the recent uh, shakeup that we saw. Uh, uh, with uh, Peter Moore uh, leaving, and then uh, I forget uh, is it Billy Hogan who got who got elevated into into a new role? I believe uh, Liverpool hired someone from uh, Manchester United who uh, who was doing a lot of their commercial deals. Um, and I just I just feel that um, in many ways we've been too dependent on uh, TV deals, 
TV money and especially Champions League money. And those have been great because we've, unfortunately, we've been in the Champions League for four years in a row. Uh, and we were able to get to two finals. We're able to win. But if you look at that 533 million in revenue in 2019, and I'm going by the Swiss Ramble, uh, uh, thread, uh, that was posted a few months ago, a big part of that was Champions League money. A big part of that was TV money. And the, I, I do think for a club of the global recognition, uh, of, of Liverpool, we should have done more. We should have uh, more more sponsors. And even if you say, okay, the Nike deal was was possibly a great uh, deal, we'll still see. Let's see how it pays off. We were able to renew Standard Charter. It, it it just I feel that we probably needed a few more, a dozen to fifty more sponsorships over that period to be able to then isolate us a bit more from a down season. And that's where the commercial, just very uh, strong commercial performance, very strong commercial revenue, in many ways insulates you from a season where you may miss the Champions League. You don't have the Champions League money. If you have those commercial partnerships in place, they can help, they can uh, insulate you. And I feel that's one of the big criticisms that I do have. Even though they've, they've invested significantly, they've grown the revenue, they've grown the wages, I feel they should have done more while, while, uh, the, sort of the, the, peer, they had the good period of being in the Champions League, now the stages of the Champions League to bring more commercial partners. And what's your take in, in terms of their commercial performance, Justin? Uh, my take on their commercial performance is that it's been mostly good. Uh, I think that they've definitely, I think, raised some money in revenues, but if you do look at it, Lugo's right. The money's coming from being in the Champions League. The money's coming from being in, uh, you know, the TV money. Uh, and then the rest of it's coming from match day, right? Which is a thing that we haven't had now for over a year and a half. And our stadium is still smaller than it needs to be to put up with the same match day revenues as Manchester United and company, right? Now, this is where you're going to have to come to re- This is something that people are going to have to come to realize. And this is something that FSG is going to have to embrace as well. Um, more more seats in the stadium, you're going to need to make Anfield uh, more of a destination and more than it is right now, right? Um, which is tough to imagine because Anfield right now is very much so a, a, a destination ground. It's a place you, you know, you go to a lot of places. If you don't live in the UK right now, going to a game every, you know, few years or maybe once in your life is the sum total of probably your experiences there. And it, and it becomes, you know, a serious destination. Now there are 500 million or so Liverpool supporters in the world, right? And my, my source on this is the number that Billy Hogan gave at an official supporters club uh, hangout that was held a few weeks ago. Um, as, as I do dual hat as the head of LSDNY. So, uh, at, you know, 500 million supporters, getting them to go to Anfield, you know, each and every one of them should be a goal. And that is the Best way to probably, and, and, I, and I hate talking this way, monetize off of supporters because that's effectively what commercial revenues are, is you're monetizing off of sponsors and hoping that supporters will buy sponsors' items. Right? That's, that, that's, that's the way this works. It, it, there's no other way to kind of break that down. And the clubs have two, have two routes they can take, which is go the United route of just trying to bake every single thing and trying to find any way to, to monetize whatever supporters will buy. And I know that Lubo, as a share, a single shareholder of the Green Bay Packers, 
would buy a share in Liverpool Football Club in a heartbeat. I know many other people who would, right? They're going to have to do things like that if they want to narrow the spending gap to sides like United, Chelsea, and City. If not, yeah. and they're comfortable with being where they are, they should just say, this is the kind of club we're going to be in, this is how we're going to be run. And effectively, what we should all prepare for is just being a hyper-successful version of Arsenal and Spurs, because that's effectively what the, the second model is. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, and when it comes to infrastructure, I think that uh, expanding the main stand, investing in Kirkby, I think these are the right uh, the right investments. I actually, to echo what Justin was saying, I actually thought that this pandemic, which has been a great time to build the main stand, because you don't have fans in, the, in there anyhow, right? You could actually build it out. I know that there's issues with getting the approvals and the timelines and everything. Yeah, it, would, it takes a lot longer. But you know, look at what Real Madrid are doing right now. They're using the pandemic. They invested to rebuild their stadium. They're playing in the training ground. And coming out of the pandemic, they'll have a brand new stadium, which will uh, give them a lot more revenue. I actually was, was thinking even last year, and I didn't really raise it at the point, didn't debate it much, but I thought this pandemic would be a great time to build out the Anfield Road stand. Now, I know timing-wise from an approval perspective and all that probably wasn't ideal, but it's something that uh, they would ha- I would say the FSG would have to be a lot more aggressive. And even when I, when I was lucky enough to come to Anfield a year, a year and a half ago, the, the, there was that place that they, the space that they own outside the stadium. I know the plans eventually are to potentially build that into some sort of a hotel, uh, uh where, uh, fans coming into Anfield could stay there. They, they, they do have such potentially plans, if you will. Now, I don't know all the details around getting the approvals and all of that and, and potential challenges with, uh, with, with the people who live in the neighborhood, but I do feel that the club would need to be, or FSG would need to be a lot more aggressive with uh, maximizing these infrastructure projects that would allow them to, uh, you know, sorry, sorry to be that person. A lot of, a lot of people from the UK, uh, don't, don't like this term, but there are a lot of consumers of, of, of Liverpool FC that would love to come from all over the world to stay in Liverpool for a couple of days, go and see a game, spend a lot of money. And the, and the club is currently not capitalizing on that. That's a, g- a good point because I mean, speaking of the the Anfield Road expansion, I mean that when that there was reports in the Echo and the like back in December that the, the club were weeks away from submitting the the planning application and that they hoped to have uh, the stand ready to go in 2022. Um, that stand will reportedly bring the capacity to to just over sixty one thousand. But there's a lot of people who suggest that sixty one thousand doesn't go nearly far enough, and that that the club should have aimed for much closer to seventy thousand. Especially when you look at what some of our rivals have done in terms of their stadiums in recent years. I mean, what what's your position on that in regards to the stadium, Justin? Oh no, it's, I think it, we'll put it this way. You're always going to be the, the club we should be comparing ourselves to to try to get to their commercial stand, status is United, right? They're our rival on the pitch. They're not our rival off of it. They blow us out of the water. They continually have for a long time. It's why, despite the fact that you know the, the there's this tension between the supporters and the Glazer family, it hasn't bubbled over because of the fact that the Glazer family and the commercial operations of the club make enough money to buy the club whatever it needs, and even though the Glazers are piling debt on top of the club, 
one of the things that's poorly understood about debt is that debt isn't a problem unless you can't pay it. Manchester United at this moment as configured will always be able to pay their debt. So for them, it's not really a problem unless everything goes completely, which is a problem for everybody. But the big thing for them is their, their ground fits 74,000 people. That's a lot of money extra every single match. You know, it's basically, if, if you work it out, I think, if you work it out, it's multiple games worth of gates at some of the higher ticket prices in the league, because United and, and Liverpool do have two of the higher ticket prices in the league. It's basically full games of extra gates and amenities that come with going into the ground, such as buying a beer, buying food, going to the club shop. All of these things weigh in, and we have been so slow to mobilize any of that. No, I, I agree. I think the Anfield Road is 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 a great uh, follow follow on follow up on the uh, on the main stand. I I wish it could be sixty four thousand as opposed to sixty one thousand. I think the challenge is going to be how do you go from there because it, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult to look at the Sir Kenny Dalglish stand or or the cop and say yes, you can expand that. Um, and and it may be impossible, which would be a shame because if you end up just you know saying the most Anfield could do is 61,000 beyond just the commercial limitation that that imposes in comparison to Manchester United, it also means that you're missing the opportunity of having a lot more fans uh, being the ground, uh, not just from, from, from Liverpool and, and, and the area, but also from all over the world that could come in. And so I do hope that that is something that's in, in the works or at least is being considered. Once you have the, the, the Anfield Road stand um, built, what else can you do? Uh, and it may not be possible just given where the stadium is and, and, and everything else that, that, uh, that it could be a challenge logistically, but I would love to see them look into that more aggressively over the next few years. And I don't know. I think we've come a long way in terms of engineering and architecture. We might be able to do something really, really innovative to maintain the same footprint, but actually expand the capacity. Yeah, ju just to correct myself on that before we move on, it's actually 2023 that uh, the club hope to have the Anfield Road expansion completed in, so it's it's even further away. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see if there, there is any further possibility for expansion. I, I I think I've read that there's maybe a couple smaller things that they could do that could add another couple thousand, but it's nothing major and, and nothing that will, will certainly bridge the gap between ourselves and, and uh, Manchester United. Um, you know, speaking of the future and the, the Anfield Road expansion, uh, something being mooted at the moment is that Redbird Capital are reportedly set to purchase a stake in FSG for £537 million, uh, which would value FSG, of course, at over £5 billion. Um, and Redbird currently own League Two club Toulouse. They've, they've taken a recent interest in football. I mean, what what do you know about Redbird Capital, Justin, and, and what impact do you think this deal will have on Liverpool, if any? So, I don't necessarily think who they are specifically is that important. Um, basically, what they are, though, a SPAC, is, is fairly important. Effectively, just trying to pull together large amounts of assets to unite multiple different um, you know, venues or, you know, vehicles or whatever, uh, sorry, what do I look for? Entities under a, uh, under, a, a, you know, a single flag. That's what the entire purpose of this is. That, that additional investment, 
I think that people need to be very, very, very wary of what it'll do to enhance any of the individual entities. I don't think it's going to mean a ton to the Red Sox. I don't think it's going to mean a ton to Liverpool. I don't think it'll mean a ton to Toulouse, right? It's just a way of bringing more shareholders into something to up the asset value of an organization such as FSG and to give them more operating capital. But I don't know how they plan on using that operating capital in in any way. So I don't know what what, what this is going to do in the short in the short term. I would I would assume that it's going to do nothing, and in the long term, I would assume that I wouldn't be shocked to see a uh, a more official affiliation between the likes of Toulouse, Liverpool, and then the two Red Bull teams in uh, the in, in in Germany and Austria, and probably the Red Bull team in New York. I could see the three of them also coming under the under that guise because those those groups are relatively close, and that's the kind of structure I think you would see is you'd have a lot more places to park younger players and to potentially you know use different leagues as uh, feeders you know kind of through. Uh, to eventually the upper pool, upper level of it, which will be Liverpool, right? Liverpool will be at the top of the food chain of all the European football clubs that Red Ball eventually purchases. But the question is going to be, who are they going to purchase and what's going to be their roles in kind of the pyramid there? I don't particularly love it because it's far too, um, you know, building like a, a capitalist triangular funnel to the top for my liking. But if that's the way that Liverpool are going to, you know, bridge the gap that they're going to have towards a, a, towards a city who are already doing this with NYCFC, Melbourne, and, and Melbourne, uh, I think, it, I can't remember if it's Melbourne City or if it's another team in Australia, as well as also a few other sides in Europe that they're doing this with. Girona is obviously the one that's uh, yeah. in Europe. I know they send a lot of players on yeah. loan there. So if that's the way you're going to get, bridge that particular, you know, kind of way to pool as much talent as you have, then that's the old, then it's it's the right thing to do, though I'm not in love with the entire arrangement to begin with. And so my 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 thoughts here, uh, and I try to research a little bit the the Redbirds uh, organization. So they do they have been buying uh, uh, stakes. So Toulouse is one, uh, as mentioned. They also bought about thirty to forty percent of of uh, Wasserman Media Group, which is an agency, and they have uh, quite a lot of. Uh, uh, Football players, including the Premier League, as clients, so that is potentially uh, in uh, synergy. Uh, Redbird also bought a stake in an analytics shop. I think it's out of Texas that are doing some really interesting uh, ways, uh, some really interesting new analytics with uh, in, in a lot of sports, including including football. So, to, to echo in some ways what Justin is saying, do I think that immediately this will mean that, that they will, uh, FSG will take some of that money and buy uh, uh, Kylian Mbappe this summer? Probably not. I do hope they buy Holland next summer, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a different story, right? So I, would I expect immediate, immediately huge investments in, in just you know, several, you know, several top players? Probably not. And even if, if the investment happened, it likely was planned already, but I do hope that one, what we discussed earlier about potentially converting some debt into equity, hopefully this this gives them a little bit more security and a little bit more comfort to do that, which would help the team. Uh, that's one. Uh, two is I do hope that they can uh, use some some of these opportunities with that analytics shop, maybe working more closely with Michael Edwards and his team 
towards sort of identifying new uh, market inefficiencies, new opportunities. Maybe uh, having that partnership with Wasserman uh, Media means some of the, their clients that they have some interesting clients could become uh, uh, or more likely to become Liverpool players when there is interest. And then having to lose as potentially a club uh, in France that you could start buying players from South America, for example, uh, and and have them sit there on loan for a year or two years in Toulouse until they're able to to really be at the level where they could come in the Premier League, come and play uh, for Liverpool possibly, and if not, just selling them. They, they, they are potential opportunities. Would any of this happen? I don't know, because obviously you have the Red Sox organization that's also going to ask for money. It'll be a little bit like you know that Oliver Twist scene where every every club in the FSG uh, sort of organization will be looking at this money and will be asking for for more. So how they go about um, splitting up this potential uh, additional cash will be interesting to see. But I can definitely see uh, opportunities for, if not for outright uh, investments in, in Liverpool, for potential synergies over the next few years. Yeah, no, I, I certainly take take your points on that, that maybe we're not going to see any particular financial gain from this deal, but maybe that there are some resources you know that that might be interesting for the for the club to take advantage of in in the coming years, and um, that that Redbird are going to bring to the fold. Um, you know, speculating on on kind of what the, the Redbird deal will will do for the club kind of leads into speculating on on what the future is for FSG in general. And Luba, you talked about how you can kind of break FSG's ten year tenure at the club into two five-year parts already, and maybe the the important thing then is to look at what the next five year brings. So, what do we see in the next five years? You know, what is the end game for for FSG? Because I think that's something that that a lot of fans have been asking all along. You know, what what their their aims for the club have been since since day one. I would, I, I think FSG would like to remain owners. I mean, if you read about John Henry, uh, it does appear that uh, he, not just John John Henry, but the FSG team, the leadership, they're fans of the club, and I do. Think they view themselves as more than as, as real fans, and they have affinity to the club, and would like to keep this club, uh, keep Liverpool long term, rather than just looking to sell the the the, the remaining remaining part of it in in, in the next uh, few years. So I, I do think long term they they will remain owners. I think in terms of what it means for Liverpool, definitely is going to be how do you evolve the current squad. How do you start planning for life after Jurgen Klopp, which will be here before we know it? I mean, I would love to have Jurgen stay for another 10 years, but chances are he won't. So that's going to be a very, very important strategic uh, decision they have to make. How do we, how do they go beyond Klopp? Like, what does life beyond Klopp look like? I do hope that, and I do want them to actually reinvest again in the commercial aspect, especially leveraging Redbird, leveraging uh, LeBron James, all of these other opportunities, all of these new partnerships that are coming, uh, uh, that have become sort of available to them to actually grow the commercial aspect of the club a lot more. And honestly, a couple of other things, I want them to invest in the women's team. I think that is the one thing we didn't get a, a, a lot to talk about, but it is, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to have a Liverpool women, uh, the Liverpool women's team be just uh, treated as an orphan, as a pariah, 
you know, stuck in the lower division with just very minimal investment. It, 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 especially now as, as the, the, the women's league will be televised, uh, uh, in England, it'll be televised in the, in, in the United States to have, to not have Liverpool in that league is, is embarrassing. And so that is one thing that beyond just Liverpool, the, the men's club, I really want them to invest in, in the women's club. And it will be just utter shame and utterly embarrassing if, if they do not do that, um, in the next, um, well, as soon as possible, but definitely in the next uh, couple of years. I mean, that's certainly an interesting point. I mean, we, we might complain as, as fans of the, the main team that, that they won't buy us a £50 million player, but I mean, the, the women's team would, would be delighted in just getting a, a fraction of, of that money invested in, in them because, you know, they are in dire straits at the, at the moment and they have very much been neglected, as, as you suggested. Uh, I think the... the the important thing to ask as well as you know what we see FSG offering in the future is you know do we as fans necessarily want FSG to be here in the future I mean in their 10 years so far we've won five honors and we've had an average league finishing of, of fifth I mean is that good enough Justin and, and should we expect more as fans um, I don't think it's good enough on the average but I think you also have to take the average into account of Three of those years were achieving, or two and a half of those years were achieving more than almost any other Premier League or English side has ever done, right? It's two of the best seasons in English football history. So there's a huge caveat there because while some of the rest of it's been very underwhelming, I wouldn't, tr- I would, I would not trade those, you know, those two years for almost anything, right? So some of it, I think, is the nature of them learning the game. Some of it is now that they've gotten to the top. I want them to learn from their mistakes. And not do something where they get stuck into this spin cycle of, you know, we need to get into the Champions League and then build from there. Sometimes you'd rather see them be act more aggressively and, and go for it. Um, especially also considering the fact that the assumption that they've been making around FFP is, is essentially dead because there's no, you know, the, the handbrake being taken off of spending constraints and that's going to allow for certain teams to, uh, to, to, you know, spend with relative impunity. I, I do think there is one elephant in the room for FSG, which is also um, that that, and this is something that I very much uh, resent. Right, I, I want to make this clear: it's a, tr- a, a main, a major resentment from me. They're one of the main, they're one of the main teams pushing for changes to the uh, the league structure to build a European Super League. Right, the reason they want that European Super League is because that they can write their own financial rules, so that those teams involved in it can write financial rules into it that would effectively disadvantage. Um, P, you know, PSG and uh, City. Now, I understand, and for that matter, Chelsea. I understand why teams would want to do that. I don't necessarily think that it is the wrong thing to do to actually place constraints on their ability to spend with impunity, given a, you know, just the the vast financial advantage they hold, and B, kind of also, you know, morally, where's the money coming from? Uh, but I do think that there's no need to break the English league structure and the Premier League to accomplish this. And the European Super League is something, is an idea that I hate. We do not need to change the competitions we have. They work. They're great. Let's just, I, I just want Liverpool to uh, not try to seek advantages for them. You know, they should try to seek advantages for themselves, but I'd rather we just do that by proxy of building within what we currently have and maximizing that rather than just having to say, uh, you know, to take our ball and uh, go to the European um, Super League because I don't want to see us play Real Madrid four times a season. I don't. 
you know, it's a novelty that comes up every few years, and that's why I like it. I'm, I would just, just give you my thoughts is definitely I'm against this concept of a super league. It's not necessary. The Premier League and the Champions League in the current format work well enough and, and give us both the, the types of games that we want, but also just, I think, keeps up with, with the heritage and, and really what makes Liverpool, Liverpool, really, a Premier League and, and Champions League or European Cup, as it was known. Let's just stick with it. There, there's no need to try to break it up into a Super League. When it comes to FSG and going forward, I, I am pro FSG. I, I do feel they're the type of owner that, or type of owners that have made mistakes, that definitely stumbled. Uh, but the last few years, they, they have been able to put together a structure. They've been able to bring together talented, um, teams, uh, under, under, under Michael Edwards. They've been able to bring together Klopp and give him all the coaches that he wants. They've been able to give him the training center that he wants. I look at this, uh, this, uh, season as a bit of a, just a, a write-off, uh, aberration. So I do think that they, they, uh, they are good owners to continue uh, going forward, but we've also looked at a lot of caveats and a lot of expectations uh, uh, about areas where they can improve as, as owners. And I would rather, I'd rather just see them sort of go that way and continue to build on the last uh, four or five years, continue to build on the trophies that they've given us, hopefully give us a lot more trophies while Jurgen is still the manager, rather than uh, say they absolutely have to sell to a, 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 a you know a Chinese or a, a Saudi Arabian or whatever investor because uh, I don't want them. I'm very much in still the pro FSG camp. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't characterize myself as definitely, and, and probably this has come through in the show, I'm not particularly pro-FSG. I think there's a lot of things that they've done that are incorrect. That's, and I think that are short. And I, I think they're just, my issue with them is just they're too dogmatically stuck to um, what they deem is their plan and that they need to occasionally um, react to what's happening around them. You can't always plan for everything because plans are made in a vacuum and, you know, football is not played in one. The world is not played, the world does not continue in a vacuum. We all very clearly know this at this point, right? We've all lived through the past. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're either one years old and don't know what I'm saying, or you've lived through the last year. In which case, you know that sometimes you have to adjust your plans, right? FSG have been loath to do that. If you believe the media that's coming out right now, it doesn't seem as if they're going to re, 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 um, they're going to reassess them. And I think that the important thing is that they're going to be, there, there will be limits on how often and how regularly we'll achieve, um, you know, victory and victory by the, you know, measured by winning trophies if they don't reassess these things. So I think that I don't want to get into the context of the conversation is who I'd rather have as an owner because again, that's just nonsense. But I do think that FSG as an ownership group do need to take a long, hard look at the model and keep doing what has worked because clearly some of it has while reassessing the fact that I don't think that this year is just an aberration. I think it was the underside to a coin. I think it was the other side to a coin that just flipped. And uh, I think that they need to understand how to, you know, try to make this not such a, uh, a two outcome thing where it's boom or bust. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a, a 
balanced opinion. I think certainly there's been a, an air of bad luck this this uh, season, but at the same time, to a degree, you always make your your own luck. And uh, we we maybe could have put more safeguards in in place to to protect against this this bad luck by you know for example that to to break it down to its simple form if we bought another centre half last summer we might not have suffered so much for these injuries and um, so that is certainly something they they need to consider changing I mean my my own position on on FSG has always been I'm I'm not going to say I'm anti FSG it's hard to be considering. You know, kind of the successes we've enjoyed with under Jurgen Klopp. You know, with with the, the appointment of Michael Edwards, and I think they've certainly gone in in the right direction in a lot of ways. But I do always question whether FSG are necessarily the the owners that can help us establish a dynasty, which is, of course what I as a fan want and what every fan wants. And until they they manage to establish that dynasty, that question mark's going to remain. Well, we all want dynasty. Maybe the question is, what's the definition of a dynasty? I think some people would want to see Liverpool win the title every year or every other year. Uh, personally, I think he, he, a little bit more the, the Red Sox model, maybe, if it means that uh, Liverpool are contending, competing for a title, uh, let's say, three out of four years, and maybe one or two years out of those are actually winning it, whether it's, even if you alternate a Premier League and Champions League, Sort of what's what's happened the last couple of years, I'm okay with that. Um, obviously, different different people have different different appetites, but um, I, I do I do in many ways I feel because of all the injuries and because of the pandemic and everything else. Yes, they probably were a bit too dogmatic in certain periods of time, whether it's last whether it was last summer or in January. But I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and then, uh, but I'm also very curious to see uh, what this next season is going to look like, what the next two, three seasons are going to look like, uh, and and then how what, how that translates into success on the pitch. Yeah, I, I think that's that's certainly the way we we have to look at it for now, and and hope that that you know FSG can you know as they've done all along. You know, maybe learn from what's gone wrong this season and, and apply it in the, in the months to come. And I mean, we we did see interest. I mean, now you have to take anything said in the media. I think after January, we were when results weren't going too well. We there was initial reports that there would be two budgets. You know, one for if we got Champions League, one if we don't. And then just I don't even think it was a month later that was rubbished by the quote-unquote reliable journalists who suggested that there, there will be investment regardless of Champions League qualification. If that is the case, could that maybe be the suggestion that, that FSG are learning to some degree that, that, that there is a need for some investment in the squad? You'd hope so. I mean, ultimately, if you have a business that's flagging, right, which regardless of what you want to say about it, right now we're in eighth place in the Premier League. Right, or seventh place in the Premier League. That's not what we expected being this season. We have an obvious shortage of, we've had obvious shortages of bodies of all, all season long because of a variety of reasons. But we also seen that we just have some players that are probably not up to the standard that we need anymore. And when you have an asset that has some parts that aren't working, what you have to do is get rid of those and then stimulate it. And the only way to stimulate it is by spending. The, 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 I think that people overthink about transfers too often. 
right? Because some, the solution to every single problem is not just go out to the market and go buy a player. Klopp is famous for saying that. I think that he's earned um, the, the right to operate under that fashion. On the same time, I also think that he hasn't been backed enough because he just doesn't have his fullest squad of players that he seems to trust or want to use as he's been given. And I think that if you want to, you know, try to quickly arrest this before it becomes a uh, a slide that can take us into areas that we don't want to be, which is uh, Macedonia on a Thursday night, then uh, you have to, you know, invest him with proper investment into getting, uh, you know, players who he'll actually use and trust as starters. And maybe my closing thought, and, and I do have to run, is that uh, this, I think this whole situation is still too fluid right now. Uh, we just have to wait until the summer uh, to see what, what it, one, what it looks like with fans in the stadia uh, next year. I know they're making plans for that. Two is where we end up, whether we finish in top four, whether we hopefully win uh, the Champions League. We're still a bit long shots for both, but I think we're still uh, in both. A competition, so I think it's too difficult at this time to to speculate. Uh, maybe we could revisit uh, whether it's uh, maybe at the end of the summer uh, when uh, the, the the transfer season has has finished and we see sort of what has happened. Maybe Justin and I can uh, revisit and and have a, a a part two of this of this podcast, hopefully with uh, uh, in, in person in New York with some beers. But at this point in time, I think it's just too difficult to speculate. What what the rest of the season and the summer could look like? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there, there, there's certainly a degree of, of speculation in, in the the last section of the podcast here, and there there is still some some factors that that are yet to play out, as as you've suggested. So the situation could could very well be different in in three months' time. Um, I mean, it, it's been a, a fascinating discussion, and I think it, one that that was well worth having given especially the the current environment and i i think we, we could probably have, have gone for for much longer that there, there was a lot more to, to to get into but um i i am wary that 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 guy is, is probably having a shiver down his spine somewhere at the moment noticing that we've gone so long um so i think we'll we'll wrap up and it, it might be something as you said um luba that we we could maybe revisit in in the future when when the situation evolves as it is is constantly evolving um but before we finish up uh, do you have any plugs justin yeah so um i'm also recording a uh, us pod tonight so uh the uh, look look uh, look forward to that and i can guarantee you that it will be both shorter if you made it to the end of this one and we'll have different topics to cover. Certainly, give that that a listen, and um, I'll I'll have both of the the lads' um, Twitter tags, obviously, in the 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 post with the the podcast. So give them a, a follow if you aren't already. Um, th- thank you for joining me today, Justin and Lubo. Um, again, I I think it was a great insight to get from from two American-based fans because you you have that unique insight into to FSG and the Red Sox and. And all that that's come before, so I think you you were you were the perfect guest for for this particular topic. So again, thanks for joining me. I, I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners will too. Um, so we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye.
Social Podcast Network.